You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional audio resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Well, good to be with you again this week, Northway Church. For those just joining in online with us, my name is Shay Stumlin, lead pastor here at Northway Church. Glad you're with us. As we head through Memorial Day weekend this weekend, it's crazy to think that summer is already upon us. And so with that in mind, what we're gonna do is we're gonna launch a brand new summer teaching series starting this week uh, through the book of Psalms. We're gonna take 10 select Psalms over the next 10 weeks, and we're gonna work our way through them together as a church. Now, if you are new to the book of Psalms, man, you are in for a treat because essentially what the Psalms are is they are a collection of songs and prayers of God's people that help connect the human experience, the the vast variety of emotions and experiences that we encounter as human beings, and that connects them to the sovereignty of God. In many ways, what the Psalms are doing is they, they help teach our hearts what it means and what it's like to bring all of us to all of God. Not just some of us, not just part of us, not just the good stuff that we like to put on social media, but I'm talking the good, the bad, and the ugly, the mess that we are, and what it means to bring that before God and to trust in his sufficiency to meet us right where we're at. And so when it comes to the book of Psalms, Psalms are, there's 150 of them in your Old Testament. And many believe that these 150 Psalms were written at various points in Israel's history, but they were compiled and assimilated shortly after the Babylonian captivity when Israel was allowed to go back to Jerusalem. And there are out of the 150 Psalms, 101 of them are written by six unique authors, uh, primarily King David who wrote 73 of those and then 49 that are anonymous. But Psalm one and two kind of serve as an, an introduction to the Psalter, to the book of Psalms as a whole. Uh, the themes in Psalm one and two are gonna get carried out all the way throughout the rest of the book of Psalms. For instance, Psalm two, Uh, focuses in on the promise that God made to his people in 2 Samuel 7 of a Messiah, a divine king who would come at some point and usher in the fullness of his kingdom and reign on David's throne forever. And many of the Psalms are looking forward to that day and celebrating and anticipating that day. Psalm 1, however, focuses on the here and now and what it means as a follower of God to be in the already but not yet, the tension of seeking to abide in the counsel of God for the design of flourishing that he's given us, but at the same time, facing the temptations and the compromises of a world around us that assails us daily. And so that's where we're gonna begin this series, Psalm 1 right here. Psalm 1 is gonna present to us two paths of living. One is a path that leads to righteousness, and another is the path of the wicked. One is a path that leads to life and flourishing, and the other is a path that leads to death and destruction. And in fact, Romans 1 tells us that God has woven these these understanding, this understanding of these two paths into the human conscience. Like even the secular world around us, just study pop culture and entertainment, you see these themes of these two paths everywhere, whether it's in Star Wars and the, the light side and the dark side or the, re, the, re, the resistance and the rebellion. Maybe it's uh, in Harry Potter versus Voldemort or it's the hobbits in Middle Earth waging war against um, Sauron and Mordor. Maybe it's, for some of y'all, maybe it's Matthew Crawley and, and Thomas Barrow that are going at each other. Maybe it's just Waterburger in and out. These 
these themes are all around us of good versus evil and one path versus another. These two paths ever before us. But here's the deal. No matter which path we're on, nobody ever seems to think that they're on the wrong path. We all believe that we're in the right path, but the truth is there is an objective biblical understanding that we're given in the scriptures that talks about there is really only one way to living. In fact, Proverbs 16, 25 says, there is a way, a path that seems right to a man, but in the end, it brings forth death. And that's posed against um, Jesus who said in John chapter 10, verse 10, that there's actually another way, a true way, one that may be more difficult at first and maybe even more costly at first, but in the end, promises to lead to the fullness of life. And so this is exactly what Psalm 1 is gonna show us. So if you have a Bible with you, I'd love you to turn with me to Psalm chapter one, and we'll work our way through here, these six verses. And I want you to notice as you get to Psalm one, Psalm one verse one begins with blessed is the man. And what Psalm one is gonna do is talk about the road that leads to blessing as opposed to the road that leads to folly and to wickedness. But he says, how blessed is the man. Now, when we hear the word blessed, in our nomenclature out in the West, we tend to associate blessing with that of some external circumstantial physical provision. So when we see somebody, a man or woman, that's got an incredible paycheck or they got a nice job, or maybe they're in a, an amazing relationship or they get live in a nice house and maybe got some good vacay coming up this summer, we go, man, they are hashtag blessed. That is a blessed person. But biblically speaking, it's actually not that way at all. And in fact, in Hebrew, the, the literal translation of the word blessed, we would also use the word happy. But it's a happiness that's not rooted in just external physical provision, but one that, that finds itself in a more internal, transcendent joy that comes in spiritual provision. For instance, in the book of Job, Job chapter 5, verse 17, Job remarks, how happy is the one. That's the same Hebrew word that's used in Psalm 1. Blessed, happy. How blessed, how happy is the one who receives reproof from God. Now, you and I, we wouldn't associate reproof or discipline as, quote, hashtag blessed. Like that doesn't seem like something that we would think would be a blessing, but yet Job understood that there is a spiritual benefit that comes from the reproof or the discipline of God because it brings us back into alignment with God who is our true source of joy. And so in that regard, it is the blessed life to receive reproof. It's a spiritual asset to our account. Likewise, Jesus in the New Testament, Matthew chapter five in the Beatitudes, Jesus says, blessed or happy are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are persecuted. And again, we would never go, persecution's a blessed thing. But the reason Jesus says it is, is because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They're being persecuted on this earth because this earth is not their home. And it's evidence that you are of a greater kingdom that is still to come. And so think less in terms of some sort of physical reward or circumstance, but rather an internal joy that, that comes from living in accordance with God's design for human flourishing. And so with that in mind, we go, how do we get there? How do we get to this blessed life? That's what Psalm 1 is going to deal with. And Derek Kidner, one of my fav uh, favorite commentators on the book of Psalms, has probably the most 
simple outline to this Psalm of any that I've read. Here's what it is. Three negatives, one positive, two illustrations, and a conclusion. That's how we're gonna see what the blessed life is with three negatives, one positive, two illustrations, and a conclusion. All three negatives are in verse one. This is the blessed man who doesn't do these things. Listen to this. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, who does not stand in the, in the way of sinners, nor does he sit in the seat of scoffers. And so what we have here in Psalm 1, verse 1, is three negative trilogies, all with a downward spiral. Notice the theme there. Walk, stand, sit, counsel, way, seat, wicked, sinners, scoffers. This is a form of poetic repetition that is very popular in the book of Psalms. Uh, in a way, when you'll see one, two, or three lines, all nuanced a bit different, but all used to say the same thing, to emphasize the same meaning. And here in verse one, it's emphasizing the danger of us joining in with sin and the journey, the progressive journey that sin wants to take us on down to destruction. And uh, Kidner notes here that it be, always begins with our journey to sin with a casual observance, casually observing alternative views opposed to God. And then it moves to the embodying of those ideas, of actually embracing those and living them. And eventually you find yourself advocating for those ideas that run counter to God in the seat of a scoffer. It's the same process, by the way, that we saw again in Genesis 3, when sin entered the world in the garden. God lays before the first man and woman, lays before them the instruction. And there are two roads, two paths. And one, you can eat from any tree in the garden that you want. Eat of the tree of life and live forever. It leads to life. But there's this other tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that you are not to eat of because in the day that you do, you will surely die. One path to life, one path to destruction. And sure enough, in comes the enemy who presents that first man and woman some alternative views, some other ideas for them to consider that run counter to what God has told. And in that moment, after considering those other alternative ideas, they begin to to stew on those ideas. They begin to think through and process those ideas. In fact, Genesis tells us that when Eve looked upon the tree, she saw that it was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes and that it can make one wise. And then in that moment, after considering those ideas and thinking upon them, they act on it. They partake of the fruit and they consume. And by the end of the story, even at the point that God confronts Adam, Adam has now taken the seat of a scoffer defending his actions while putting blame on God. All the while, not even realizing that in this whole process of disobedience, it has led to their destruction, not to their flourishing, just as God has said. And thus the psalmist here is seeking to show us this is how sin works. It begins with believing, then moves to behaving, and then ultimately moves to belonging. It is listening to fools, thinking like fools, acting like a fool until you become a fool. And in fact, in the same way here, Derek Kidner notes that these three complete phrases, they show three aspects, indeed three degrees of departure from God. 
They move from one, accepting sin's advice, to two, being party to its ways, and then third, adopting the most fatal of all attitudes, the most scandalous of all sinners, the scoffer, who is evidencing that they are the furthest from repentance. They are mocking the very hand that is feeding them. And as Andy Crouch notes, a scoffer is simply one who has the perception of total authority and yet has zero vulnerability. And you can find them, the scoffers, on their thrones of social media, of Facebook and Twitter, on their throne of personal blogs. And they are advocating here. They are mocking for the things that are opposed to God. They are mocking God himself, professing to be wise, yet while Romans 1 tells us, proving all along to be fools. The psalmist is saying here, if you wanna be blessed, if you wanna live the blessed life, the life that leads towards the truest form of human flourishing, then don't head down this path of listening to and following and ultimately advocating for the very things that God is opposed to. Instead, in verse two, notice now we switch from the three negatives to one positive, one affirmative. Instead, notice this is the blessed man, the one who delights in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. The happy life, the blessed life, according to the psalmist, really comes down to abiding by the counsel of God over and above that of the world. This person finds their delight in the law of the Lord. Now that word law that's used there, it's actually the word in Hebrew, Torah, means instruction, it means teaching. And in the psalmist day, the Torah was the first five books of the Bible, Genesis to Deuteronomy, in which God laid down 613, not just the 10 commandments, but 613 ordinances, instruction for how God's people were to live in such a way that would lead to their flourishing. Now, that sounds kind of funky to us to go delighting in law. In fact, some folks would go, that's exactly what I hate about Christianity. It's just a bunch of rules and regulations. It's a bunch of legalistic do's and don'ts. And so the idea to delight in law, that seems foreign to us. But, and if that's you, by the way, notice C.S. Lewis uh, felt the same way. Listen to what C.S. Lewis said on observing this particular uh, verse here. He says, this was to me at first, very mysterious. Thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery. I can understand that a man must respect those statutes and try to obey them, maybe even assent to them in his heart. But it is very hard to find out how they could be, so to speak, delicious or exhilarating. He says, to find the prohibition of adultery or to find the prohibition of theft to be that like of honey, surely it could be more aptly compared to the dentist forceps or perhaps being sent to the front line of a war than it is to be compared to something enjoyable and sweet. So C.S. Lewis can identify, we can identify. Oftentimes what we say, what I've heralded, what you've heralded probably is that, no, what Christianity is not about, it's not about rules, it's about a relationship. And yes and amen it is. And that would be totally true if God's rules or God's ordinances, God's, God's instruction existed apart from his divine character and his divine and good will towards us. 
You see, any good and healthy relationship must have clear expectation and boundaries on it in order for it to be healthy. Any good relationship must. I mean, the same is true with my wife and I, Tiff and I, if there are not expectations, if it's just anything goes in our marriage, it's not gonna lead to a healthy relationship. If anything goes in our relationship, then we're gonna lead towards destruction. If it's, you can spend whatever you want. If it's, you can, if you can head down the road and visit and have intimacy with anybody else outside of our marriage that you want, that's not gonna go well for our relationship. Now, there has to be clear and healthy expectation to lead towards health. That's not to say that our marriage is built on law, but it does mean that a healthy instruction, a healthy expectation is what teaches our weak hearts how to discipline ourselves so that we can pursue the greatest intimacy and the greatest health that this relationship can offer. The reason God established his law in Israel was to give them a picture of who he is and the road that will lead towards human flourishing and the greatest intimacy with him that we can possibly experience. The the law of God was to reveal God. That's why it was such a delight. That's why for the psalmist, it's not just some begrudging martyrdom of obedience, of giving up the good life in order to follow God's commands. No, it's a delight because the psalmist knows this is where true life is found in true intimacy with the Father. This is the path to righteousness. Man's rules can be prideful and oppressive, but God's law, his instruction for us is actually created not to steal our joy, but to lead us into it. And so true blessing is abiding in the instruction of God rather than in the counsel of the wicked. Now in verse three and four, he's gonna give us two illustrations to show us these two paths. You have the illustration of the happy man as compared to a tree in verse three and the wicked man as compared to shaft in verse four. Look at the happy man, the blessed man as compared to a tree. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. And so the happy man is compared to a tree here. And there's a lot of takeaways we could find in this one verse, but three specific benefits that come from being like a tree that is abiding in God's word. He's rooted, he's nourished, and he's fruitful. Abiding in God's word doesn't mean that the storms won't come, but it means that when they do, you'll be rooted, you'll be anchored so that you're not storm tossed. But he's also nourished. Every good tree needs a good water source in order to strengthen it. And in the same way, there's no better water source than an active stream that you can be planted by. In this illustration, living submitted to God's word provides the daily nourishment that you and I will need to be strengthened for the particular kind of life that God has called us to. Apart from which, there is is no way to to be rooted other than your, will end to your own withering as a tree apart from God's word. But not only that, but notice also the tree is fruitful. To the one who abides in God's word, there is a fruitfulness. Every tree has a season. There's a season for dormancy and there's a season that is bursting forth with produce. And this is the steady, quiet growth cycle of every tree that makes it healthy. And so it is with every Christian as well who abides in God's counsel. The guarantee here 
is that in due season, there will be a harvest, but you may go through a delayed gratification at first, but that season will come and it will most likely be at God's right timing. Now, this is what it means to prosper, by the way, biblically. Worldly prosperity is usually measured in some possible physical assets and outcome that can be gained right now, but biblical prosperity is measured in what is guaranteed as a spiritual asset and outcome that will come in its due season. Our joy is not rooted in the temporal, it's rooted in the eternal. It is sin that seeks to convince us otherwise. So the way of blessing, according to the psalmist here, is like that of a tree, spiritually rooted in God's word, nourished by God's word, producing fruit over the long haul. Now, the second illustration, the way of folly, is compared to something totally different in verse four. The wicked are compared to like that of shaft. You see this. The wicked are not so, but they're like chaff that the wind drives away. Now, chaff is the non-seed part of grain. It's light, it's insignificant, and it's what get, it gets blown away when the winds come. This is the, the winnowing process at harvest in Israel. They would go up to the threshing floor, usually on a hillside or on a terrace, and they would take the, the wheat and with a winnowing fork, they would hold it up and the heavier grain, the nourishing part would fall to the ground and the imposter of chaff, the husks would be blown away by the wind. And this is what chaff is. It's weightless, it's worthless. It's here one moment and it's gone the next. The wicked path, the wicked life is like a one hit wonder. It comes on the scene strong. It flies up the chart. It gets played at five parties in a row, and then you never hear from it again. And so it is with those who invest their lives in the things that run counter to what God has called us to and designed for us. John brought us to the same conclusion in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16 and 17, when he says, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, everything we saw in Genesis 3, that is not from the Father but it is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. And so there's two ways to live, according to the psalmist. Put your roots down in the streams of God's word. It will be slow growing at first, but in due season, it will bear much fruit and be strong enough to hold you firm in the midst of storms. Or, you can take the immediate shortcut to a lookalike satisfaction of chaff, looking so promising in the short run, but will be blown away as soon as the winds come. And indeed, the winds are coming. And that's why in verses five and six, the psalmist ends with this future day of judgment that will come. Listen to this in verse five and six. Therefore, the wicked, they will not stand in judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. What the psalmist does here in his conclusion is now looking past this earthly life, looking down the road through eternity and getting to that final day of judgment. And notice the irony when that judgment comes. The wicked who appeared to stand so strong in this life 
will not be standing in that day of judgment. The sinners who sat in the assembly of the mockers in this life, they will not be sitting in the assembly of the righteous when that judgment comes. The choice is clear here. Stand temporarily with the wicked or stand eternally in the assembly of the righteous. Sit temporarily right now with the scoffers mocking God or sit eternally in the assembly of the righteous at that day of judgment. It is your choice. It is our choice, but the truth is clear. The wicked will perish, but the righteous, they will be known by God. They will be counted. And so this is Psalm 1 right here. It's put before us, these two paths. And as I've meditated on this this past week, as I've interacted over this text with a number of folks, can I, I just wanna put two exhortations out to us as a church that we can consider of what it means to be a Psalm 1 church here at Northway. I would say two things. One, we need to be a people who abide in God's word. And secondly, we need to be a people who rest in God's son. Here's what I mean by that. To be a people who abide in God's word. Let me ask this question as maybe a, a question of introspection for you and for me and for all of us. And that is what is the predominant source of wisdom that you tend to turn to in your life? I've had to ask myself that question. What is the predominant source of wisdom that fills my days? Is it, is it the newspaper? Is it the Wall Street Journal? Is it social media? Is it media itself? Is it entertainment? Is it our professors that we've listened to? What is the predominant source of truth that we are seeking to absorb in our lives? And with that, we might ask, how much time do we spend being shaped and formed by sources of truth that are opposed to God rather than those that would press us towards God? I don't know about you, but this is a convicting question for me to ask. How much counsel am I allowing into my life that ultimately is shaping me away from God rather than towards God? I'm convinced that in my weakest moments of my faith, a lot of that reason comes because I have got a thousand different oxygen supply lines that are feeding into me that are polluted rather than the one oxygen supply line of God's word that breathes clean and fresh air that sustains my life and leads towards flourishing. You gotta understand, and I've, I've gotta consider this as well, there is no neutrality when it comes to the influences around us. They are either pressing us towards God or they are pressing us away from God. And maybe now again is the time to do some inventory about what those sources are. But remember Jesus's words in John 15, four, abide in me and I in you, just as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. There is no life, true life, apart from Jesus Christ and his counsel. God's word is our lifeline to the flourishing that he's designed for us. Let us be a people who drink deeply from God's word. As Peter has said, the true word, the true source of power that gives us everything that we need pertaining to life and godliness. If you need help in this area, I wanna say one, welcome to the party. We all need help. 
But I'm telling you, we've got a number of folks in this church who we would love to connect you with, who can come around you and help you to cultivate a deep delight and a daily abiding in God's word that will lead you towards that greater path of human flourishing that he has called and designed you for. But secondly, let me say this. Not only do we need to be a people who abide in God's word, we need to be a people who rest in God's son. Now, if you're like me and you have walked through seasons where you feel limited in strength and desire to cling to the sufficiency of God's word, when you feel that compromise and temptation of the assault of the world around us to lead us away from God into paths that are different than what he's called us to, when you find yourselves in those weak moments like I have, even in recent days, we need to remember that we have been given the one who fulfilled Psalm 1 for us. Jesus ultimately is the one who did not go to the way of the wicked. Jesus is the one who has fulfilled every command in the Torah, the instruction of God. Jesus is the one who stood on this earth like a tree and grafted us into himself through his sacrificial work on the cross. Jesus is the one who, because of that work on the cross, has now assured our seat in the assembly of the righteous on the day of judgment that can never be taken away. He did all of this for us on the cross, and through his resurrection, so that we could be clothed in his righteousness and be blessed in him forever. Psalm 1 is not ultimately about just wisdom and making good choices over bad ones, though there is a lot to glean there. Psalm 1 ultimately is pointing to the one who became this for us. It's pointing us to the kind of life and fruit that only comes in Jesus Christ. Life in Christ is the best and most fulfilling form of human flourishing you're ever gonna find. It's the greatest delight, the greatest blessing of a life that one can ever live being rooted in Jesus Christ. It will not eliminate the storms that come your way, but it will hold you. The life in Christ that you have will hold you as you abide in him and persevere through. Ultimately, there is only one path that leads towards blessing and it is through Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus said in John 14, six, I am the way, I'm the path, I'm the truth, I'm the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. There are two paths, one apart from Christ that leads to death and destruction, and only one path that is in Christ that leads to life and flourishing. Let us be a Psalm 1 church. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the counsel that comes to us through Psalm 1 that reminds us of these two paths that are ever before us and the temptations of our own flesh that wanna take us down a path towards wickedness and destruction in a path that is opposed to you and that you yourself oppose. But God, thank you that you have provided for us the way through Jesus Christ that leads to flourishing. Help us to be a people that abide in the counsel of your son's word, that we would drink deeply from the well that is your truth and have our lives conform to your word rather than trying to make your word conform to our lives. And God, help us to be a people who rest in your son, the finished work of Jesus, 
that has sealed our eternity for us, that has clothed us in righteousness and has now freed our hearts up to find its truest source of joy in the person and work of Jesus. And we pray, God, you would help us to be this kind of Psalm 1 church. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.